This is a Morley Radio production. Welcome everyone to ArtCast. Just a reminder, you can listen back to season one, which includes seven episodes on the Morley Radio website, which included Artist Support Pledge founder Matthew Burrows, Goldie and Morley Chelsea alumni Susan Collins. The first five episodes of season two are also available with Andy Holden, Russell Shaw, Higgs, Myra Kalix, Barry Rygate, Helen Kirkham, Hannah User, and Peter Kennard. Artcast is a podcast usually presented by Matt G, artist and subject leader for fine art at the Chelsea Centre, Morley College. But today, it will be presented by myself, HNC fine art student Phoebe Ingleby, and fine art foundation student Barbara Turney. The decision to do this podcast was originally inspired by photographs taken from the polio outbreak in the 1940s, where students were being remotely taught by radio. This podcast is a series of informal discussions with artists, designers and musicians about their work, their lifestyle and how they've adapted during the current crisis we live in. The aim is to disseminate material for students by limiting screen time and providing a feed of information for when they are taking a break from the screen. I'm really excited to welcome with us today Jeremy Della. Jeremy is a conceptual artist who works across mediums with a huge emphasis on collaboration. He met Andy Warhol in 1986 and spent two weeks working at the factory in New York. In 1997, he produced Acid Brass, a musical collaboration with the Williams Ferry Brass Band from Stockport. It was a project to mix the music of a traditional brass band with Acid House and Detroit Techno. His work has a strong political aspect, in terms of the subjects dealt with and also by involving the public in the creative process. Folk Archive was a tour of so-called people's art and has been exhibited throughout the UK, including at the Barbican Centre. Sacrilege, a one-one bouncy replica of Stonehenge created for the 2012 Olympic Games, was toured around the UK. Della staged the Battle of Orgreave in 2001, bringing together almost 1,000 people in a public reenactment of a violent confrontation from the 1984 miners' strike. The reenactment was filmed by director Mike Figgis for Art Angel magazine and Channel 4. The Battle of Ugrave was ranked second in the Guardian article's Best Art of the 21st Century list, with critic Hetty Judah calling it a monument of sorts. The performance was at once a participatory ritual, a spectacle, and a living archive and a space to mourn. In 2004, for the opening of Manifesta V, the roving European biennial of contemporary art, Della organised a social parade through the streets of the city of Donostia San Sebastian, drafting and cadres of local alternative societies and support groups to participate. In 2009, Della created Procession, a free and uniquely Mancunian parade through the centre of Manchester along Deansgate, a co-commission by Manchester International Festival and Corner House. Procession worked with a diverse group of people drawn from the 10 boroughs of Greater Manchester and took place on Sunday the 5th of July at 2 o'clock. Our Hobbyist Depeche Mode was a documentary co-directed with Nick Abrahams about Depeche Mode fans around the world and was premiered at the London Film Festival and followed by festival screenings around the world. On the 1st of July 2016, his We're Here Because We're Here, commemorating the 100th anniversary of the Battle of the Somme, took place in public spaces around the United Kingdom. On the 29th of June 2017, his event What Is the City But The People?, also opened in Man- Manchester International Festival. In 2019, the Jewish Museum London commissioned Della to create a short film of anti-Semitic footage showing contemporary media, politicians and propagandists making anti-Semitic statements for its special exhibit, Jews, Money, Myth. 
Della produced a documentary, Everybody in the Place, An Incomplete History of Britain, which covered acid house and rave culture and political turmoil in Britain in the 1980s, first shown by BBC4 on the 2nd of August 2019. Della was the winner of the Turner Prize in 2004 and was also selected to represent Great Britain at the Venice Biennial in 2013. His work, The Battle of Orgreave, ranked second in The Guardian's list of the best art of the 21st century. Um, so, hi, my name is Phoebe um, and I study fine art at Morley and I'm also a student rep. I did my undergraduate degree in history of art at Cambridge before deciding to take up drawing and painting again. Um, and I'm currently approaching my practice with solely an art historical background, which I kind of like to think helps inform the messages and themes of my work. Um, I'm currently working on some oil paintings from film stills, which explore and critique, you know, male-centric camera lenses and stuff in mainstream cinema. Um, and themes in my work include the male gaze, adolescence, sexuality, gender and power. So in terms of questions or points of discussion for today's episode of the podcast, in the interest of opening this up to the wider community, a call for action was put out to the Morley Chelsea student body as well as the public. Um, questions have then been gathered and will be put forward today either by the students who are joining us, so Barbara, um, or uh, from questions that they've sent in. Our foundation students all submitted at least two questions each and then voted on which ones would be asked today by myself. Um, so I'm Barbara and I'm studying um, fine art at Morley College Level 4 Foundation and I'm currently working on various projects and I feel like the processes that I really like are kind of like expressive and like I really like to use different materials and I like just to experiment with other materials and processes. So I just wanted to start by saying I've been a huge fan of your work for a really long time now. When I was about 12, my parents took me to see uh, your exhibition at the Hayward Gallery with, with Shrigley. But I remember being just so engrossed by the display. Um, you explored some really complex, profound themes, uh, but presented them in a way that was you know, accessible and even enjoyable for a child, someone very young. Um, you know, you and Trigley both used humour and irony in your work a lot, as well as illustration and these really interactive, immersive installations. And I remember being kind of in awe and intrigued by the darker, more satirical undertones of the exhibit. Um, for example, I remember there was this big British flag in like this recreated uh, set of like a teenager's bedroom that said suburbia on it. And, you know, as a 12-year-old, maybe I didn't quite know why I understood the exhibit, but I absorbed the information in an almost unconscious way um, and in a way that has really stayed with me. So thank you for that. Um, and <laughs> anyway, this leads us quite nicely into one of the questions posed by um, our Level 4 Foundation students. Ashanti asks, why do you make conceptual art? Quite a big question, but... <laughs> as opposed to what? As opposed to non-conceptual art, I suppose, do you think? Yeah, I guess as opposed to uh, a focus on like the material processes like painting or drawing, you know. I never, I don't have skills in that area. I don't have painting skills or art skills, traditional art skills, certainly. I wasn't, I didn't do art at school for A-level or O-level. Uh, so I don't have, I wish I, wish I did. In a way, it'd be much easier if I did. Um, but uh, so I just use the skills I have, if, I, if you can call it skills, uh, I just use the material that I have around me. So that's often non-traditional material in a sense to make work, but I'm not a traditional artist, certainly. And I guess kind of on a similar note, in terms of just talking about how your art, you know, as you said, it's, it's pure kind of concept and your material is kind of intellectual material or political material. 
Do you think artwork about social issues should be presented directly or should be more metaphorical or ambiguous, which is a question from Moses from the foundation course? I think I think it can be anything. It doesn't have to be activist looking. It can be poetic. It can be film. It can be painting. It can take any form and should have your own personal style to it. I don't think you have to feel you have to present a work in a specific way. I don't know if you've been to the exhibition at the Tate, Life Between Islands at the moment, which is I on. I haven't yet. I'm dying to see it. Art, art and artists from the Caribbean who've settled in the UK or worked in the UK. And you see there's a whole different, such a huge range of uh, responses and ways of interpreting that experience. So there's no specific one proper way of doing it. And another question from Yasmin in the foundation group. Um, in what setting do you feel most proactive and inspired when you're making your work? Personally, I prefer to make work that isn't in galleries. So I like to make do things that are outside of spaces, traditional spaces. So I like working in the open air, as it were, or, or, or non-gallery, non-museum spaces. You don't really know what's going to happen. So things can get out of control a bit or things can change. The public can bring their own ideas to something and make can change the work and make it better. Also, I like making films. So that's, that's in a sense, in a traditional space to exhibit something, but filmmaking is something I've, I really like doing. I wish I did it more, to be honest. But, um, but on the whole, I can work. I can probably work anywhere. Uh, but uh, I do like working outside of museums and galleries. No, I think everyone appreciates the kind of element of spontaneity in so many of your pieces, which is very refreshing. Um, and another question from Rosie, who's also on the foundation course. Um, this is something to do with, have you ever been uninspired by anything? Like, what do you usually do when you're feeling uninspired or lost for ideas? That's a really good question, because often you do, you have a kind of mental block like a writer's block, but like an artist's block. And you don't really know what what, uh, what to do with something and you can't really get excited by it and so on. I think the best thing to do is not to stress too much about it and try and think of other things that you're doing maybe. Uh, often something I do is with a, if I have a, a notebook with blank pages, I just put on music and try and get sort of slightly transported somewhere else by the music and that sometimes frees up brain a little bit or just making marks on a page and that could turn into something or words and just almost word or or image association can help but I think that uh yes I do and it's terrifying when it happens because you you just expect that you're going to have ideas and you're going to be fine forever but sometimes you just can't think of anything and you try and try and the often the more you try the worse it gets so um it's a it's a difficult one and it must be bad especially if you're a painter having a, you know, having a blank canvas. It's like uh, being a writer and having a blank page and you've got to fill it with something. But um, luckily I usually work on more than one thing at the time. So you can just try and work on something else when you're stressing about that. And often when you're not thinking about something, you have ideas because your brain's working in a different way in the background rather than in the foreground. And that's good. It's, and it's interesting that you say um, when, you have, when you're stuck for ideas, you start with a piece of paper and, and music and trying to get something down. Because obviously lots of your work is about social issues and, you know, politics. 
would you say that those social issues and political issues are kind of a part of the artist process? I mean, do they kickstart the process or do you kind of try and create work and go from there? What, they kind of, yeah, what comes first, yeah. the work or the Because <laughs> there's always a issue. constant flow of issues. Well, well, yes, it just turns into one big mess, doesn't it, in a way, in terms of politics. So you're just always looking at things and thinking about what's going on. I, you know, I like keeping in touch with the news and knowing what's happening, just keeping on top of it in a sense up to a point. But I think a lot of people get obsessed with the news. I do. So that's something I do. I do like to know what's going on around me. But often you want to make the work that has a bit of longevity. It's not just about a thing that's happening at this moment. It has some kind of resonance to the future, maybe even the past as well. So I don't often, you know what, I don't really think about my process. I know I'm getting lots of questions about it, but I try not to think about how I work because I just do. I just work. And so I'm not that self-conscious. It's all, a, you know, it's all just a big, especially if you're working on more than one thing at once, it's just this sort of relentless, or it feels like that sometimes, just dealing with things and lots of things happening at the same time, which I quite like. I like to be, I like to be busy. I don't like not being busy. And I think to be busy is a really good thing, frankly, for me. Um, but I just, I just, you know, just ideas just occur at times. I think that's that's what happens, and you just just be aware and, and sort of uh, open to. Uh, cur- I mean, curiosity. I suppose the word is curiosity that I'm looking for. Just keep being curious. I think that would be the thing I would say. Being interested in things. And on the topic of political art. Uh, I can imagine you get a lot of people, you know, critiquing your art, not necessarily the artwork itself, but your political orientation and, and your views, you know, especially in the, uh, you know, living under the government that we do. Um, and, you know, I know you touch on some, you know, Marxist theory in your documentary, Everybody in the Place, which is one of my favourite of your works. And for people listening that don't know what it's about, it's, I don't know if you'd say it, it's like a postmodern exploration of the history of Acid House in Britain. Um, and looking at kind of rave culture around the minor strike. It is. It's, it's looking at the 80s in Britain through the lens of popular music or dance music. But the format is a, is a class. It's, it's a class in a secondary school that I'm giving to a group of young people, A-level students. So it's me being a teacher, basically. And uh, also it's their reaction to what they're looking at. So it's it's a few viewpoints, not just my viewpoint. It's their viewpoint as well, which is important. I loved it as well because the class was so you know familiar and the students and it all just felt you felt very involved as a viewer, especially as a young viewer as well. You felt very included, um, which I loved. Well, it was very important that they were in the film a lot and they 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 were speaking, but also there's lots of shots of them looking at things and their reactions to things, even if they're not necessarily talking. You can see that they're, they're liking something or not liking something. So it was always with them in mind. They were very, very important because you're, hopefully you're seeing the footage through their eyes and they're seeing all that footage for the first time or most of it, or most of them are. So it's about their coming to this, finding out about this moment, which for them is historical, but for me it's like my youth. And I guess on the topic of, you know, uh, politics and uh and political art has your work ever been perceived as controversial you know publicly have people ever voiced that kind of uh opinion and response uh that's barbara's question from the foundation course well of course and uh you have to avoid social media basically if you don't if you don't want to find out what people think about your work 
just don't look at it and uh, just trying to think too much about that. But on the whole, I think I've, done, I've got away with it, really. I don't think I've had too much criticism. You know, you expect it sometimes and it doesn't come and then you do some little thing and people get very upset about it, or some people do. But on the whole, you can't please everyone. And if you're making work that is a bit obnoxious sometimes and it's to be expected. You might hear some drilling. I don't know if you could hear that. There's drilling in my the block I live in. No, don't worry. I can't actually. Okay. I can't do anything <laughs> about it, I'm afraid. No worries. Okay. Um, and then staying on the topic of everybody in the place, Elaine, a member of the public who submitted a question, asks, you lived through the miners' strike during the Thatcher's time as prime minister, and how did this affect your art? It's a good question. I mean, I was, I was a teenager, so I wasn't affected by it at the time, really, apart from what I was <coughs> looking at on the, tel- on the telly. So I was absorbing it. I wasn't from a mining family. I wasn't living in the north of England. So it wasn't something I counted on a daily basis in the streets, but it was something I was very aware of and it formed a kind of a backdrop for a whole year of life in Britain, uh, literally. And so it was something that stuck with me in that respect. It, much in the same way that the experience we've been through in the last two years will stick with people in different ways at different ages. And so it was something that was very concerning at the time and something I didn't I mean I sort of understood it but I wanted to find out more about it so that's why I returned to it in that film but also in 2001 when I re- re- reconstructed a battle from the minor strike that's probably a, it's just basically it's a piece of research but physical reenactment research uh, so for me it was a personal thing even though it was a big public event when I did the Battle of Orgreave but um, um it did have an effect. I think it probably sort of made me understand a little bit about Britain and about power in Britain and class and uh, changes in society. It, it made things very, but might not have been on the surface or just underneath the surface it became very explicit because it was out. It was people fighting, thousands of people fighting rather than not politicians arguing. It actually became something that spilled out into the public life massively it was um such an amazing piece as well because i think the emotional responses of the people who partook as well in the recreation were you know you couldn't have expected uh how emotionally involved people would be and emotionally moved people would be by the piece i think that was it was so amazing it really was thank you well you know it was i think for a lot of the miners former miners but also for the reenactors they not the reenactors certainly hadn't been reenacted anything from the 20th century like that and certainly not anything post-war so for them it was quite shocking to reenact something with people who are actually part of that battle alongside them so they were shocked by the emotion i think and then the former miners were just happy to be showing what happened to them in a public space i think and to be paid for it as well that's quite important they were being paid to be there so I think for them it was a different, it was very much mixed emotions for the miners. But for the reenactors, I think they were just shocked by the passion, if you can call it that, of the miners. Um, and then staying on the topic of political context, um, Camilla, another foundation student, is asking, how might Brexit affect artists and their art? Or has Brexit affected your art recently or in the past? Well, there's, there's two points to that, isn't there? There's how it might affect the art you make and then it, how it might affect your life as an artist in terms of how you can travel, how you can study, how your work is sold or exhibited. There are barriers put up to you being an artist, just trade barriers. There's, there's that aspect. Uh, so there's, there's the sort of technical aspect and, and, and because now it's more difficult to do things in Europe and it'll, be getting, it'll probably become increasingly difficult. So there's that. 
the bureaucracy around Brexit, and also about around Brit people's view of Britain in Europe. I don't think Britain is a particularly popular country in Europe. They just can't understand why we've done what we've done, the decisions we've made. So we're not really in favour in that respect. But then in terms of artistically, into uh, ideas and so on, how does that affect us? Well, I mean, it, as a subject, it's very rich, isn't it, in a way, because it's all about if you're into Britain and you're into seeing the sides that people took during that and who took what side and how they behaved. And uh, that was something that interested me. I made a film about it in Parliament Square in 2019 about a situation in Parliament Square and it, you just saw all the poison in Britain come to the top in a way. And in a way, it's a bit like the minor strike. People took sides. It's difficult not to take sides during the Brexit discussion, wasn't it? It was so polarised. And um, so I think the, the wounds from that are going to take a long time to heal. People are still angry about it. For sure. Um, and... And it's interesting to hear about all your th thought processes and your techniques when you're making art and like the different mediums that you use. But another question of mine is, um, has the viewer been a part of your work at any point? Or like, would you want the viewer to kind of, yeah, be a part of the work? Well, when you do something in public, the viewer sort of completes the work. If you'd made this, all these works, like for example, the Inflatable Stonehenge, I don't know if you know about that, sacrilege. If you, if you just have an inflatable Stonehenge and no one goes on it, then the work is not complete. So in a, in a lot of ways, the public complete the work. They complete the circle in a way. And their response to it and their relationship to it and the dynamic between the public and the work is the work effectively, is, is what makes it whole. So it's very important for the public a part of it. They might not be acting or doing something, but just bear witnessing of it or they're being within a certain space at a certain time means that they are key. And I think that was especially apparent, you know, with the reenactment of the, what was it called? The Battle of, I can't remember. Albury, the Battle of Albury. Yes. No, I mean, that was definitely very important in that one. Yeah. In a way, the public are taking part because they're performing it. And then, and then there's an audience as well, and they're, they're bearing witness in a sense. And so that was very important that there was an audience. It wasn't just a film shoot with no no one looking there had to be a lot of people watching it and talking about it and that's sort of a very important part of it it's a public event i think um as you know a group of young artists working in a society where art is definitely commodified and the artist is kind of a tool in many ways um we're very interested in <laughs> we're very interested in how you maintain your status as kind of a fundamentally democratic artist as we were just saying you know um we know you use a lot of alternative means of exhibition. You refer to and use media that's kind of regarded in art history as low art, you know, looking at the rave scene, um, using posters and billboards um, for your art rather than, you know, exhibiting it in mainstream uh, institutions and gallery spaces, which I think is amazing and very admirable. That might be one of your strategies. Um, but Caitlin asks, kind of on this note, how does art fit for you into a capitalist society? And... She kind of continues this by asking, when does an artwork turn into a commodity? Does, is it when it reaches the gallery or? Probably, I mean, it probably turns into a commodity when it's bought and sold, I imagine. I mean, that's, that's probably the strictest sense when money is exchanged to own it, I would suggest. I mean, I'm not, I don't really know much about economic theory, but that would be the one, the most obvious answer. And, but how do you exist within a capitalist society as an artist? Well, uh, 
how do we, how does anyone exist? I mean, we just do, and that's how that's what you have to do. You know, I make work that's free that I give away. I make work that is for sale, and sometimes, occasionally, does sell. I don't sell much work, but occasionally I do. So for me, it's a real mix. A lot of the work I make is, if if not free, then it's very cheap. So in a sense, you're destroying any sort of idea of of uh, value of your work if you're selling a poster for twenty quid that's signed. Uh, you're really sort of devaluing, in a sense, your market, but also you're making. It means you lots of people can own a piece of work, which I like that idea as well. So uh, you have to make those decisions. But you know, I do, I do rely on the market. I do have galleries, and I do exhibitions occasionally, very occasionally. I just had one actually, and I do um, sell work, and I do sell work at art fairs, but not tons. But to be honest, just because it's the market doesn't mean it's bad. There are bad elements to it, and some people do abuse that. But if I didn't have that, I wouldn't be able to survive because you don't get paid for doing so many things when you do an exhibition in a gallery or a museum or a commission. You get some money. You don't get much. You couldn't survive on that. So you, in a way, the market subsidizes the public sector, which, which I talk about is in terms of museums and commissions and so on. So the market isn't necessarily a bad thing. If you can use it to, to sort of survive and to, means you can make other work so um, it's, a, it's a complicated mix, and you just have to find your way through it. There's a lot of car, uh, police cars going past. Can you hear I can them? slightly. A little bit. <laughs> well, this mic's quite good then, because it means it's not picking up yeah. all the other noise around me. So that's good. So, I mean, you basically, everyone has their own way of dealing with it. And you can go the full way of just wanting to make millions and millions, which I know, you know, I know people that do that. Or you kind of pl- you don't play it. You just use it to as best you can to your advantage, and so you do a mix of things from from literally free things that you give away, or you lose money doing a lot of lot of work. I've done things I'm most happy with that lost me money, but then you know you might be able to recoup it by selling a piece of work to you know. So you you just try and have a balance and a mix. But you know the market isn't necessarily terrible, but of course there are elements of it which probably are quite terrible. Um, but you just have to be aware. No, I think that's, that's good advice. I think lots of artists feel like they're kind of making a choice between, you know, pursuing their, their passion and, uh, you know, kind of selling, selling yes, yeah, exactly, selling, selling their soul. But, it, you know, it, it's, not, it's not as straightforward as that, as a, as a choice. I think in a way we all have to, everyone has to make a living in a sense, unless you're subsidised, unless the state will support you or a patron, but even then you're, that's an, that's a, that's an exchange of some degree. So, you just have to like find the level that you're happy with to exist upon. If you're if you're lucky enough to be able to do that, where you think, well, I can do this, but also I can do that. I can make money doing this, but I can do things I really want to do. It's just making sort of choices, and you know, someone might you might call that compromises, but it isn't really because you're just doing what's true to yourself. If you're really really into money, then you can make you can make a lot of money because you can just go full on for that, and a lot of artists do that. But if you want an interesting life, maybe you do something slightly different. Well, it's nice that you don't compromise, you know, what you're truly interested in and what you truly stand for, just to... I try not to. But, you know, the fear of being thought of selling out is still quite quite yeah. a strong fear. Maybe people in my generation, maybe it doesn't exist in... I don't know if that still exists, but um, I just try and... It's just finding a mix, basically. Like a balance. That sounds like good advice. 
Um, I actually have a question about one of your more recent work, um, Father and Son, the uh, sculpture exhibited in Melbourne. Um, for those who haven't seen it, the work is these two wax effigies of Lachlan and Rupert Murdoch, I think, who are set alight and slowly melt throughout the day. But what I found quite interesting about this work was that I remember reading that one journalist didn't even identify the subjects to be the Murdochs, which I thought... Oh, he knew they were, he, he knew they were the Murdochs, he just didn't want to mention them. Right, okay, right, 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 that makes sense. I think sense. he was trying to be clever <laughs> and sort of write about these figures in an allegorical, metaphorical way. But he knew who they were. He'd been, he'd, he'd been told who they were. And they're very clearly worthy. I think, you know, for some viewers, though, who maybe wouldn't, you know, maybe younger people, whatever. It's interesting, though, because even if without their identification, the message of the work is still quite pertinent for me. Like, I think, you know, it obviously means it is significant that they are the Murdochs. But I think it, they can just be these ambiguous wax sculptures of white men in business attire. Um, and white, one I remember one critic called them like antiquated, which could be a kind of like commentary on the role of statues and like idolization through art in general and the way it's kind of coming into question. Yes, I mean, statues, that's a good point actually about statues. Why do we need them? Maybe they should just be temporary and they can melt, melt away. But also these are people that there should never be statues to, such appalling beings. But so I think... I haven't really talked about this work very much because it's quite new and also I haven't been really interviewed since it happened in sort of November, I think it was. But yeah, I, it was, they are recognisable if you know about, I mean, especially the Rupert Murdoch one. Lachlan is less so because he sort of changes his appearance quite a bit weirdly, but Rupert Murdoch is totally him. And uh, I just wanted to make something about power, but also power in. Hope, hopefully ebbing away, but also there's a lot of other sort of subtext in it around climate and so on. Um, yes, it was a 12-hour event that you could go and witness, basically. That's so cool. It's kind of like a vigil. Yeah, it was. It was called a vigil, actually, because it ended in, in at night time, and it was just to consider these people, maybe even consider their souls. What are their, Where are their souls? Because usually a vigil is when you, you think about someone, you might even say prayers for someone's soul who's recently died and in a way it was about them and where about their souls and uh what you know are they could they be saved is it possible to save these people almost like out of pity for them um well i was thinking as well you know with movements like black lives matter and the kind of move to decolonize the arts statues play such a huge role in these movements and you know there's a big call to getting rid of all these monuments um, that honor slave traders and historical racists and stuff. So I thought your use of wax was kind of like a material, almost like foil to bronze and iron and stuff that have honored these awful men. Like, I don't even know the, the destruction of the Colston statue. And, you know, I thought the work could have been like a comment on, you know, these statues are meant to be transient. They're not meant to be forever especially if they are honoring pretty awful people um well i mean it's funny because that work was actually planned before the colston statue was torn down and yeah, it, was, it was planned for um 1990 uh, 2019 and we first had the plan to do it but it, because of covid we had to sort of put it off for a year and a half nearly nearly two years it was a year and a half late basically so all these other discussions grew up after the idea to do it but it's, you know, these are important questions, aren't they, to, to look at? And it sort of puts art and representation at the forefront of discussions in Britain. So, I mean, art is a very 
vital. Visual arts can kind of really amazing time to be an artist in a way because of all of these discussions that are going on and it puts us us as artists right at the heart of these questions but actually it was more that work came about really more to do with um the bushfires that would happened had just happened in australia and uh, so it was more about them melting away because of climate change as well it's a very kind of obvious metaphor in a way but of course these sort of figures these life-size figures of, of men who have achieved something are everywhere aren't they and i think um there is undoubtedly a comparison with, with other sort of depictions of men in public spaces um so it was yes it was playing into that yeah i thought that was really interesting um and kind of linking to that conversation uh what are your thoughts on these fairly new, I guess, movements to decolonize art and art history. You know, lots I see lots of art historians defending these statues and monuments on the basis that they are art and they are meant to be, you know, appreciated as art separate from their message. Um, and I don't well, know, has, has this been an in, in, in area you're interested in? I think in? it is. First of all, most of them are not art. No, I mean, they're yeah. Not really, <laughs> they're agree. not even great works of art. Yeah. They're statues and st something because something's a statue doesn't mean it's art. It's a representation, isn't it, of someone, and its role is not aesthetic. Often, it's just to show you what this person was and what they did, and to mem memorialize them and literally put them on a pedestal. So, it's not iconoclastic in terms of great artworks. When you uh, destroy them or take them down, and um, so I have no problem with that, but I, you know, I think everyone, every, every case should be treated on its own merits, as where the work is, who it is, when it was made, where, what it says around it. They're all very different, I think. So Colston was clearly something that was kind of an insult, really, to people to put him on a pedestal, and it's so obviously someone who should not have, should have been taken away. I mean, that statue was put up a hundred years after he died, so wasn't even in his lifetime or just after it was a very retrospective thing like a lot of these confederate generals statues of them in, in america they were often put up 50 60 70 years after these men had died as, as some sort of rear guard action so i think that there's definitely monuments and that should go for whatever reason and others it should be changed maybe contemporary art put up around them there should, there's ways of dealing with them but there's no blanket solution to these things because some things actually quite good that they stay up because it reminds you about something otherwise you wouldn't know about this thing or something that happened somewhere so there's there are examples that i think are really important to stay but not necessarily of um big statues but other things so other kinds of monuments maybe but you know i think you have to take each one on its own specific context and merit if that's the right word and I think, you know, as long as they are recontextualized and used, as you said, to educate, then I, I do, I do, I see what you mean. Some rather than others. Yeah. You know, there's a way of doing it, but sometimes you just have to, they just have to go down. Well, I mean, where's the law that, you know, once a statue goes up, it's stuck forever. Where's, where does that come from? Because that doesn't happen with buildings, but what, why does it happen with a statue? Is it because we're so worried about the human body moving it around, but... There's no, absolutely no reason why things can't be changed. I mean, it happened in ancient Rome. Statues went up and down all the time of people who were in and out of favour. So it's, it's to be expected. And um, 
And also there's better ways about learning about slavery and Colston than a statue. And um, the, so I think it's just on its own merits, but that was a clear problem, problematic uh, statue. Well, thank you for that. That was very interesting insight. Um, so I think we've um, come to the end of our 10 questions that we had from the foundation students. But I mean, if you don't mind, we have a couple more extra ones from the public um, that Barbara is going to take us through. Yeah. If you have time. Um, so the first one is from Simon and Emma, who both led a foundation course. And they're asking, why is foundation so important? Oh, sorry. Um, they, they currently lead it. So oh, I don't sorry. know. I don't want them to... <laughs> Oh, sorry. I don't want them to think. I don't want them to think they've been sacked. <laughs> yeah. I know they don't now. They've, they've lost their jobs. <laughs> sorry. We know something sorry, they man. don't. Um, why is it important? Well, I mean, I didn't do foundation. I didn't go to art college, so I can only imagine it's important because it must be something quite a laugh. I thought just doing all these different things and finding out what you want to do, rather than going straight into some heavy painting theory based course. Just experiment and find out what you're good at and what you like. Um, so I hope, I mean, it's, I don't really know what the state of foundation courses are in Britain at the moment, if they're just being, if they're being lessened or there's more of them or less, I mean, I just assume there's less because there's less of everything in terms of art education, apart from numbers of students. But, uh, I just, uh, it just seems like a lot of fun, uh, a foundation course. And, uh, and also it's very much like the way artists work now. Artists don't necessarily have just have one medium to work in. They work in a whole lot and they're collaborative and so on. And it just seems that the that's replicated in a foundation course's structure. But I'm just sort of, this is what I guess, because I'm like I said, I've never done one or taught on one, so I really have no idea. Um, and then another one is from Elliot, um, who would like to hear more about your public sculpture in Manchester, a work based on the suffragettes. Um Oh, no, I did one about Peterloo. It wasn't Suffragettes. But I, I, he might be getting confused. I did a, a memorial to the Peterloo massacre in Manchester, which is a sort of an a, a abstract uh, architectural memorial based on a compass and the points around the world. But I don't, I'm not quite sure. There is a Suffragette memorial in Manchester, or uh, there's a sculpture, a statue, actually, as it happens, but a very good one because the... I think it's Millicent, Millicent Fawcett, I think, and she's standing on a chair. So it's a, it's a sculpture of a woman on a chair, which is really nice, not a pedestal. It's a chair, and, and she's uh, sort of in full flight. So there are ways of doing good public sculptures like that. Um, and then a final one from Robert. Um, he asked, what were the highlights of your time at the factory in New York, and did it influence your work? Well, I mean, I wasn't there that long, so I'm not going to make out that I just had some amazing sort of time there and where a lot of people did. I was, I was there only there for a two-week period in 1986. And um, I don't remember that much of it, but I, I think, to be honest, it was just, it was an eye-opener as it showed that there were actually, actually no boundaries to be an artist because he had no boundaries, in a sense. He seemed to do whatever he wanted. Well, that's how it felt. And you just create your own world, and he definitely created a, a world for him to for him to live in. But then also he created a world for us to live in as well, which is really an important aspect of it. I think and he he helped create the contemporary world that we live in, good or good and bad. Your work retrospectively documents music culture and public space, and we touched upon everybody in the place. Or Phoebe was touching upon it, and that's available on YouTube for anyone who wants to watch that. Um, is it? Yeah, good. and. Um, See, 
the combining the, the sound of brass bands of classic acid house but i was wondering in terms of modern music is there any particular electronic artists you're into at the moment i recall the warp records times tate event um where you collaborated with one of tricks put never who as is a personal favorite of mine actually so yeah is there anything you're listening to at the moment uh i I wish i could say i am but i'm not (laughs) i wish i could say i'm working i'm like working with like the most whizzy new artists and listening to their work but i'm not at all Um, i'm actually i'm sort of sitting in on a session by a producer who makes who's made records with electronic music artists and is now making a sort of solo album but i don't think i can talk about that at the moment i'm just sitting in and chatting to him as he makes stuff i'm adding sort of vibes in a way but no (laughs) of uh input necessarily i'm just there for company and to talk but um, I don't listen to enough music anymore. I, turned to, I think I just got captured by the news and, and I just sort of get obsessed with that. But I need to listen to more music because whenever I do, I really like it, but I just don't listen to it enough. Um, I just did a show for NTS, which I really enjoyed. I wasn't necessarily playing new music, but I just was playing, I was on the breakfast show a few weeks ago before Christmas. And that was really good fun, just playing music I liked from like the sounds of birds, certain birds singing to bootleg of Prince on this final concert. It's just all sorts. But um, I'm quite wide. As I get older, my taste gets wider and wider, to be honest. I just wanted to also touch upon your piece in 2016, um, We're Here Because We're Here, which was, for people that don't know the piece, it was commemorating 100 years since the Battle of the Somme. I think for me that that there's so much, there's so many factors that are an art form in that. One of them being that, am I right? You had to sort of entice, you had to entice the sort of army of a thousand people without them knowing what it was because it had to be secret. Yes, it was a project whereby people just in very accurate uniform, First World War uniform, would appear in public spaces in Britain and then walk through stations, get on trains, cross the country basically in groups and will just we're just hanging out in Britain, in contemporary Britain, or even modern Britain. Well, modern Britain, but also contemporary Britain. And we're just a presence. But it was over a thousand people did it. And uh, yes, a lot of them were, mo- nearly all of them were recruited without knowing what they were going to be doing. And then they had to keep it a secret over a period of about three or four months. So it was quite logistically quite a big production, not least just clothing, of, you know, over a thousand people in, in full World War I uniform, accurate uniform. So we had quite, uh, it was quite a big production, but I had a lot of help. I mean, I couldn't have done it by myself at all. Yeah, uh, I saw a video where you said that you spent a lot of time preparing for possibilities such as the public taking a hat off someone or or any, any sort of what-ifs, but then you said what you didn't prepare for was actually how well the public would respond. I guess that's sort of, again, again, we live in a polar, well, it's also, I think, because we live in such a polarised by the government, uh, the polarised society, that we actually do forget how how well people can actually respond to something in a way. Yes. You know, I'm a pessimist as well, so I just assume the, wor- the worst will happen, and it didn't, thankfully. So I just assumed people would be, uh, would, would be maybe physically or verbally abusive to these people doing this thing, but you're right, they didn't. For whatever reason, they respected it. They understood the work, and they—I wouldn't say they enjoyed it, but they witnessed it. And they were part of it in some respects as well. But 
yeah, I was surprised, but the public really were were really into it. And I think it's, it just happened just after the Brexit vote. And I think people were just so demoralised and worn out by that campaign that anything that was different and what spoke about a, a sort of shared experience of that, and of those values of sacrifice and so on, uh, maybe made people... Uh, maybe that's why they responded to it in that way they wanted something to that everyone could like rather than be at each other's throats i think we've covered everything we wanted to get through um and your answers have been so illuminating and thorough so thank you so so much for that thank you like glad they have <laughs> no they really have thank you so much um that's a pleasure it's been no it's been such a pleasure to hear your thoughts Oh, nice to meet you. So yeah, nice, nice to, to meet you too. too. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Yeah, glad we managed to do it. And uh, well, I hope it goes well when you put it out. Thank you so, so Thank much. You. Thank you very much. This nice to see so, this you. This has cool. been amazing. Thank Bumping you. I'll to you one day, I'm sure. All Have right, a then. great day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Artcast. Today we were joined by Jeremy Della, Phoebe Ingleby from our fine art degree and myself, Barbara, from my Level 4 Foundation in Art. You can find out more about Jeremy's work at jeremydella.org. I also really recommend looking up his work on YouTube where most of his documentaries are available. Street Dance Foundations and Choreography is about learning the basics of street styles and hip-hop dance. Elements like the groove, the bounce, and the rock. We'll play with creative tasks to explore variations in rhythm, use the space and mood to better understand movement and to support the learning and performance of choreography. Go on to Morley College website to book your space.